I'd invite you to take your Bibles to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to begin with prayer, and then I'd like you to just keep your Bibles open as we'll be referring to this uh, during the message this morning. Let's pray together. Father, as we have just seen in that moving tribute to our veterans, we thank you for those that fought, and on this Memorial Day weekend, those that died, that we could be free, and that we can come as we do today to worship you without fear, that we can come and meet in your presence. And Lord, we thank you for those who voluntarily put themselves in harm's way for the freedom of others. And we think today of those that are serving in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and other places around the world, those men and women, and we lift them up before you today and pray that you would watch over them, protect them, Lord, and bring them safely home. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, too, we ask that you would guide us from the scriptures. Speak to our hearts. Help us to listen. Help us to be faithful in our responsibilities to you and to live as children who love the Lord with all our heart and who want to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about trying to follow that uh, when we're all kind of thinking about the video, you know, and, and what we just saw. That's a very powerful, moving tribute to our, our uh, soldiers and veterans that are serving out there. But I want to transition to the message this morning as we continue in this study in 1 Samuel in a passage that is very significant for today, too. I'm going to begin with a story of when I was a kid growing up. And this would be back in the days when uh, television was just getting started. Uh, you might say back when we had three channels at home and there wasn't a lot of choice about what to watch. And there was one television that was there that the whole family watched. Well, there were two uh, game shows in particular that I remember watching as a kid. One was called To Tell the Truth, and the other was I've Got a Secret. And in the one show, To Tell the Truth, uh, the way that that show worked, for those who maybe have never seen it, is that they would have three people come out who all claimed to be the same person. And this person would have done something unusual, or maybe they had an unusual occupation. And then you had a panel of four celebrities, and these... Uh, celebrities, their object was to ask questions of these three individuals to determine who was telling the truth. Because only one was the real person and the other two were lying. And uh, when the time expired, the hosts would ask each of the celebrities to make their guess, you know, and you were watching along with them and you're trying to figure out which one's the real person. And they'd make their guess and then the host would turn to these uh, contestants that were there and he would say to them will the real Joe Smith please stand up and you can remember if you were watching it you know they'd all do this kind of faking like they were going to stand up you know and finally the real guy would stand up and you'd either cheer if you had it right or you'd go oh I missed it again and uh, it was a way of kind of testing people to see if they could really discern or tell who was telling the truth well I think about that when I come to a passage like this because every religion around the world claims that they worship the true God. You know, and they all say different things about their God. And, you know, when you hear someone who says that uh, they believe that all religions are the same, well, they can't all be right. Because what people believe about God is radically different in many cases. 
And you have some people that believe that God is an impersonal force. He's just through everything. And you have others who believe that, no, God is personal and knowable. You have some religions that think that God is a part of his creation. And you have others who say, no, he is the creator and he is separate from his creation. Uh, you have uh, some who some religions believe in many gods and they try to appease all of them or control the spirit world in that way. And you have others who say that, no, there is one God, one true God who is over all. And so obviously, even though every religion around the world claims to worship the one true God, they can't all be right. So wouldn't it be nice if we could kind of do the same thing and ask, will the real God please stand up? And in, that, in this passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see an example of that. The Philistines believed in many gods, but Israel believed in one God. But because the Philistines had defeated Israel in battle, they thought that their God was more powerful than Israel's God. My God is bigger than your God. And so they took this uh, Ark of the Covenant back with them, and we're going to read what happens when they take this back to their city. Take a look at uh, chapter 5 here, and I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that's why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So here the writer of scripture is telling us something very interesting that happened when the Philistines brought this Ark of the Covenant back with them. What is the writer of scripture trying to tell us here about God? Well, first of all, he is telling us that our God is sovereign, that he is above all other gods. He is above all other gods. In the previous chapter, we saw how the Philistines had defeated Israel in battle, not once, but twice. And in that second encounter, it was so devastating that they captured the Ark of God. And remember, this Ark, again, as we explained last week, is not like Noah's Ark. This is not like some big ship. You know, we hear the word Ark, and sometimes that's what we think of in our mind. But in Hebrew, the word Ark can also mean a chest. So here was this chest, this Ark of the Covenant, that was, again, about two feet by two feet by a little over three feet, rectangular in shape, made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold inside and out, it was fitted with rings on each side so that it could be transported. They could put poles through the sides of those rings on the ark and they could carry this around as they had done. God had led them through the wilderness. God had led them into the promised land and they carried the ark of the covenant before them. Inside this ark were placed some symbolic uh, uh, symbols of their religion like the Ten Commandments were inside the Ark of the Covenant. A jar of manna was placed there. 
and also Aaron's rod that had budded. And these symbolize God's law, God's provision for his people, and God's leadership. And at different points in their history, Israel had really rejected all of those. They had broken God's law. They had grumbled about his provision. They had disobeyed his leadership that he had provided for them. And so they had sinned against this holy God. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on what would be like the lid or the covering, was uh, two angels, two cherubim that were there facing each other. And between them, it was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where the Lord was enthroned between the cherubim. The mercy seat was the place where the high priest would come and bring this offering of blood, of atonement for the sins of the people. And it would cover our rebellion and our sin. And so here, the Philistines captured this most sacred object to Israel. And they brought it to Ashdod. And Ashdod seems to be their capital city. It's the chief of the five cities that are on the plain that the Philistines lived in. And they carried the ark into Dagon's temple as a trophy of war. I mean, this was quite a feather for them in their hat, if you will. Uh, they knew the stories of what the God of Israel had done to the Egyptians and how he had devastated the armies of the Egyptians or sent these plagues. Those stories were circulating. And so they heard about this God of power and might. But now they're thinking, well, our God, our God defeated their God. So our God must be even bigger than the God of the Egyptians and the God of Israel. And they're kind of patting themselves on the back like, hey, this is pretty cool. What's going on here? The Philistines worship Dagon, the father of Baal, as their chief god. And they are saying, in effect, that my god is bigger and more powerful than your god. Well, what happened when the lights were out and the doors were closed on the temple in Ashdod? You know, we read this story. It reminds me a little bit of the movie A Night at the Museum when the Lights were turned out and the security guard is there and all kinds of funny things happen. That night, Dagon fell flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, before the Lord, just as Goliath would fall before David. And when the priests and the people came the next day and they opened the doors, you know, they see that this, this strange thing that's happened. I mean, they don't get it. I mean, this has never happened before. What's going on here? Their God, Dagon, has tipped over. It is their God who must bow before the Ark of the Covenant, before the true God. And what do they do? They don't get it. So they simply, you know, prop their God up again. They kind of come in, and you can see a whole bunch of them probably just trying to get this God back up and standing. He can't do it himself. He's just a God of stone. But Kenneth Chafin made this observation here. He said, you know, even today when our little gods fall, our first instinct is not to abandon them, but to prop them up again. What are the gods that people worship in our world? You know, in our human pride, we like to worship, in a sense, our own self-sufficiency, human wisdom, 
you know, our security maybe is in our bank account or in our economy or it's in our military might. I mean, we as a country, we have our gods, our idols that we worship. And when they fail us, like Ken Chafin saying, our first instinct is kind of to want to prop those things up again rather than turn to the Lord and seek Him and what He may be doing in our life. And I want you to notice something here in verse 3. The name for the Ark of the Covenant changes here. All the way through in Samuel up to this point, it's been called the Ark of God. But in verse 3, it is called the Ark of the Lord. The Ark of the Lord. And that word Lord is the word Yahweh. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Israel. And what is God doing here? He is revealing himself to the Philistines as the one true God. Will they listen? Will they get it? Well, the next day, after they have, you know, propped him up and, you know, they kind of check on him during the day, make sure everything's okay, so they close the doors of the temple again, the lights are off, you know, and, and overnight something strange happens again. This time Dagon falls over again. And when they come the next day and they open the doors, there he is laying face down on the floor, only this time it's worse. I mean, not only is he on the floor, but his head and his hands are broken off and they are lying on the threshold. What's going on here? What just happened? Well, in those days, it is sad to say, but it was very common in battle that a victorious army would cut off the head in the hands of the defeated foes. It was a way of kind of spreading terror on their victims, if you will, but it was a way also that they kind of took a body count of how many people that they had killed. And so here it is, in a society, in a world in which they understood what that meant, Dagon's head and his hands are cut. It is what David would do to Goliath when he defeated him in battle. And it's what the Philistines would later do to Saul and Jonathan when they defeated Israel in battle. And so here is God the Lord who has demonstrated his power over this false god, Dagon. God would not be manipulated by Israel. We saw that in chapter 4 when they presumed upon God's power and thought if they could just bring the ark into battle, they would win. And they treated him like some kind of good luck charm or rabbit's foot, and God would not be used in that way. But God also would not allow the Philistines to think that their God is more powerful than he. I mean, the Philistines, in a sense, were defying the power of this living God by thinking that their God was greater than the God of Israel. The Bible tells us in Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5, that great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Who is the real God? Who's the God that made the heavens and the earth? Who's the God that made all of this universe of which we see? It's this one true God, the God of Israel, the God who is the Lord.
You know, God has shown his power time and time again. In biblical history and the records we read here of how he displayed his power to the Egyptians in the Exodus. And why did he do it over and over again in the book of Exodus? It says, so that they may know that I am the Lord. They may know there was this evangelistic message to it, that they may know that there is one true God and come to worship him. God demonstrated his power with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when there was this test where they built an altar and they said that the God who answers by fire, he is God. And God demonstrated his power by causing the fire of heaven to fall and consume the altar and the sacrifices. And God displayed his power in Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar at a time when Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the chief ruler of the whole world and he admired what he had done and in his pride he boasted about it and God humbled him and he was sent away from his kingdom for a time until he would learn to humble himself and recognize that God alone is God that he is to be worshipped above all other gods God still does that today a number of years ago Sitting in the audience of a Jesus film showing in Mandala, India, was a man who was a witch doctor, a Bhagat, I think is how you say that, a witch doctor in their religion. And he came and he saw this movie on the life of Christ. And as he watched it, he saw Jesus and the miracles he performed. And he saw Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He saw this man who was more than just a man, who claimed to be God and the only way to the Father. And that night he went home and he took with him one of the flyers from the Jesus film, had the picture of Jesus there, and he saw this face looking at it. And he went home and he put it on a shelf where he had all these other gods, all these other idols that he worshipped in his religion. And then he stepped back and he looked at all of them. And some of them were grotesque, and some of them looked more beautiful. And then he saw the face of Jesus looking at him. And he wondered himself, which God is the real God? Could it be that there is only one true God? But how would he know, and what kind of a test could be done to know who was the true God? And so, in his way of thinking, what he did was, he took uh, some dung, which is a fuel, common fuel in India, and he took some dung and he rolled it into little balls and he placed it before each of these gods. And he, like Elijah, many, many years ago said, the God who answers by fire, he's God. And after he had placed those balls of dung there and he stepped back, almost immediately, the one in front of Jesus caught fire and it burned until all of that dung was consumed. This man gave his life to Christ. He would become an evangelist in his community and he would go out and share with his people why he had come to believe that Jesus was the true God. When I hear a story like that, I go, you know, did God have to do that? No. He didn't have to respond and act in that way, but he chose to make himself known to the people that were living in darkness in a way that communed very powerfully to them. God still does that. If you're here today, you know, and you're wondering, I mean, how do we know if God is God? You know, I'm t 
impacted so many people in our country or students that we would work with through the years, and we just challenge them to ask God, would you just ask God, if you are real, to make yourself known to me? And watch what God is going to do in your life. And time and time again, they would have these situations or circumstances where God worked in a way that they could see that he was listening to their prayers. He is the God of heaven and earth. In Isaiah 45.5, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. So what is God saying in this text in 1 Samuel 5? He is saying that he is sovereign, he is the Lord, and there is no other God. But secondly, what we see here is that our God is powerful. And there is no one who can stay his hand. When he chooses to work and act, he is powerful in accomplishing his purposes. Look at verses 6 to 12. It says that the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, and he brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. And he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines, and they said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic, and God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. In verse 6, the author introduces a new theme here. It is the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord he begins to talk about. And it is repeated actually eight times in chapters 5 and 6 for emphasis where he will mention the hand of the Lord. It said the Lord's hand was heavy upon them. And the word heavy is the word for glory. It's the word we looked at in the previous chapter where when something is glorious, it is weighty, it is significant, carries weight in our life. And so... Here the Lord's hand was heavy. God was revealing his power and his glory to the Philistines. He brought death and devastation among them, and the people were afflicted with tumors. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, there's an interesting statement added in verse 6. It says in the Septuagint that rats appeared in their land and death and destruction were throughout their city. Now that fits with what we're going to see in chapter 6 when we read that when they finally send the ark back, they make these uh, objects of gold, five gold tumors, five gold rats, and representing the five cities of the plain, and they send it back. In verse 9, the Septuagint adds that the tumors that the people had were in the groin area. 
That, too, is significant. I'm not a doctor, but when medical people have looked at this, they have concluded that this may have been an early outbreak of the bubonic plague. An early outbreak of the bubonic plague. Because in the bubonic plague, fleas from infected rats carry the disease to people. The disease causes painful swelling in the lymph nodes of the armpits and the groin. And when it is untreated, the disease is fatal in well over half of the people who get it. And so here are these notes in the Septuagint that give some clarity to this passage on what may have been happening. And God in his sovereignty and his timing allowed these things to happen at the same time to convey a very powerful message to the Philistines. What did they do in response to it, though? They send the ark to Gath. They want nothing to do with it. So they send the ark to Gath, and then Gath sends it on to Akron. You know, they're treating the ark like it's some kind of hot potato, and nobody wants it. And what was intended to be a victory parade where they would carry the ark around like this trophy of war, you know, between one city and the other, is actually a panic. It's a parody of what, what is happening here. But even more significant than that is this statement. They recognized the source of their affliction, but they would rather send God away than submit to his hand. They would not bow down before the Lord. They recognized that the reason this had happened to them was because God was at work. But rather than bow down to him or turn from their sin or turn from their rebellion against him, they wanted to send him away. That happens time and time again. I think of a student I knew in high school. When I went away to college and I started to grow in my faith in Christ and I uh, came to know the Lord in a very... A significant way. He was changing my life. I wanted to share that good news with others, with those that I knew. And this student in high school, he was not a friend of mine, really. He was the kind of guy that was very proud, arrogant, cocky, kind of a bully in the school. But in God's sovereignty, I had an opportunity where one day I'm at, at the park and born in my hometown, and I ran into him. And so I started a conversation, and I took the initiative to share Christ with them. I said, you know, can I just share some things that have happened in my life and just kind of catch up with you a little bit? And I told them what God had done in my heart, and I shared the gospel with them. And I said, have you ever made that decision to trust in Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? And he looked at me, and he rather sarcastically replied, no, but I hope I get around to it someday before I die. He heard the message of the gospel, but he didn't want to submit to it. He didn't want to yield his life to it, and yet he sort of had this arrogance still. I just thought maybe someday before I die, maybe that'll be important, and I'll get around to it. You know, we just don't know how long we have. And we don't know when that day may come. I think of Carrie, too, who shared with us in her stories of what God is doing in Thailand. She told about a woman in a village there who's a spiritist or kind of a witch doctor, if you will, in that particular area, too. And when she came to hear about Jesus and she prayed to Jesus 
Uh, she was a woman who knew that all of these evil spirits are living in her. They all left. And there was peace, if you will. All of those evil spirits left. So Gary said she recognized that the name of Jesus is powerful. He's above all other gods. But she went back to her old ways because she didn't want to, quote, lose her power. Because it was the spirits who supposedly gave her wisdom and insight and all of those things. And so rather than submit to the one true God, she just continued in her old ways. And there are so many times when people do that. They hear about Christ. Maybe they're even in a service. Maybe they went to a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe they heard the gospel presented through some other ministry. And, and they're touched and they're moved at that point. And then they just go back to their old way of life because there's a decision that needs to be made. Will we surrender our heart to Christ? Will we trust Him as our Lord and Savior? The Israelites thought the ark was the answer to their problems. And so they brought it into battle with them. But their heart was not right with God. And unless we're right with God, no amount of religious activity is going to change anything. The Philistines thought the ark was the cause of their problems. But instead of turning to him, what they thought the answer was, was to send him away. Just like many people in our world today, you know, I mean, have you ever heard people who say that they think that Christianity or religion is the cause of all the problems in the world? If we could just get, a, get rid of religion, you know, or just get rid of God and all this talk, we'd solve all the problems in the world. That's sort of what the Philistines were thinking. Let's just send God away. But they do not realize how devastating that is for them as individuals or for the nation that chooses that course. In 1715, Louis XIV of France died. Louis XIV was very arrogant, too, as a human ruler. He called himself the Great. He made the infamous statement that I am the state. I am the law. I am the government. You know, I am God, basically, is what he was saying in his arrogance. His court was the most magnificent in all of Europe, and his funeral was spectacular. His body lay in a golden coffin, and to dramatize the deceased king's greatness, orders had been given that the cathedral that day should be very dimly lit with only one special candle set above his coffin. And thousands came, packed that cathedral, and they waited in hushed silence to hear what the bishop was going to say. And Bishop Mazelon that day began to speak, and then slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle, and he said, only God is great. Only God is great. It was a powerful message. And that's the message of this text. That there's only one God, the God of heaven and earth, and he alone is great and worthy of our worship and our praise. God is sovereign. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he is above all other so-called gods. God is powerful. 
His hand is heavy in judgment when we rebel against Him. But His hand is glorious when His favor rests upon us. Because you'll see that description of the hand of the Lord being upon people like Nehemiah or others in the Old Testament when there is this blessing and favor and power. And the invitation of the Scripture is turn to Him today. Turn to Him today and open your heart to Him. Yield your life to Him. Yield your circumstances to Him. And you will experience His blessing in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and you know where we're at, both in our relationship with you and the circumstances in our life. And I would pray that if there's anyone here who has never come into that personal relationship with you, Savior and Lord, that today would be the day that you would open your heart to Christ and ask Him to forgive your sins, come into your life, to be your Savior and Lord, and to direct your steps. And He will do that. He will take you at your word. And for those of us who know you, Lord, there are challenges and circumstances in our life. There are burdens we carry, things that are heavy on our heart. Sometimes we try to go it on our own, too. Lord, forgive us. Help us to lay those things at your feet today and to trust you, to yield our life fully to you. And Lord, we would pray that your hand would be upon us in a way in which we experience your blessing, your guidance, your power, your wisdom, your work in our life. And we will give you all the praise and glory.